0: As we continue our study of the questions and answers that have been submitted, we come across one that says, Can you please explain, quote, Messiah ben Joseph, end quote, and the relationship to Yeshua? Is Joseph from the tribe of Judah, seeing that he's the son of Jacob? If the Messiah is to come from the tribe of Judah, which he does as Messiah ben David, How then is Messiah a descendant of Joseph? It's a really good question. I
1: thought that was his father's name.
0: (laughs) That's not what they're referring to here, no. Really? Yeah.
1: I always thought that's what
0: that meant. It isn't, no. Ah. It goes back to the teaching of the Essenes, which is where John the Baptist grew up. John's parents, if you remember, were very old when he was born and he passed away when he was very young. So he was raised at the Essenes community, down at Qumran. And in the Bible, there are two kinds of prophecies, right? Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who's gonna die for the sins of mankind. And you've got Isaiah chapter nine who says he's a king of kings and the increase and glory of his kingdom shall never end. So they said clearly there must be two messiahs coming. One they term messiah ben joseph. Because joseph if you remember was. Shall we say sold out by his brothers as they sold him into slavery. Rejected by his own. And yet came eventually to a position in Egypt where he was able to save them and deliver them. So they call the prophecies about the suffering servant. And assign those to Messiah ben Joseph. And the ones for the conquering king, everybody thinks of who is king of Israel? David. So they call him Messiah ben David. And if you open up to the book of Matthew, there's a point at which John the Baptist's eyes get opened. I think it's in chapter 11. It is, Matthew chapter 11. Let me make a note of that here. So Messiah ben Joseph doesn't mean, no, that Joseph's going to be his father or that he descends from the tribe of Joseph, just that Joseph was the one that was betrayed by his brothers and suffered. In the spirit of Joseph. Yeah, in the spirit of Joseph. But in Matthew chapter 11, let us start in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Yeshua finished commanding his 12 disciples, they departed from there to teach and to preach in their (laughs) cities. Their cities refers to what? Yeah, the areas around the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, like Bethesda and Chorazin, the fishing villages from which the disciples came all but one. Who was the only disciple who was from the southern kingdom? Judas Iscariot, yeah. Verse 2, and when John, this is John which? The John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Messiah, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Meaning, are you Messiah ben Joseph or are you both? And it's not two Messiahs, it's two comings of Messiah. So John was the first one to go, wait a minute. They're all fulfilled in this man, just not at the same time. So verse 4, Yeshua answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Those prophecies include ones about the one they called Messiah Ben-Joseph and the ones they called Messiah Ben-David. So he's saying, yes, they're all about me. So he's come once already, but he's returning again. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, unto us a child is born. That's the first coming. And then unto us a son is given. That's the second coming. So... The idea of Messiah ben Joseph versus Messiah ben David was a way to reconcile a suffering servant dying for the sins of others versus a conquering king that's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And they simply didn't realize that the suffering servant was 2,000 years ago when he returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation chapter 19. Indeed.
1: The prophecies of the the resurrection, that's the bridge
0: between the two. Yeah, the prophecies of the resurrection is the bridge between the two. But even the apostles, if you remember, didn't understand about the resurrection. Yeah, (laughs) Not until it was fulfilled. So Messiah ben Joseph is not a biblical term. Messiah ben David is, go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Yeshua, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes to give us three sets of 14 generations. Look at Matthew 1 verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Messiah are 14 <laughs> generations. Why three times does it hammer 14 generations? Because David, David in Hebrew, in the Gematria, what's a Dalet? Four. Avav, six. Four and six is ten. At the last Dalet, which is four, do you get? 14. So it's screaming, David, 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 that this is the promised son of David. Right? Right. Let's go on to the next question then if there's no further inquiry on that one. It's from Revelation chapter 13 verse 10. So let's turn up to Revelation. Before I go, Let's make a pit stop in Acts 1.
1: When the disciples asked the Lord, will you, again at this time, will you at this time restore the
0: kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What were they saying? Are you Messiah Ben-David? It's,
1: like, it's almost like they're asking the same question
0: as John the Baptist did. Just about, except they're asking it from the standpoint of, now we know you're Messiah Ben-David, the conquering king. When? Right? When? And the answer was, not now.
1: are are you now? Are you now?
0: Right. He's suffered. He's been crucified, buried, and resurrected. Are you now going to bring in the kingdom? And what did Hosea chapter 6 say? There's 2,000 years in between. How long has it been? About 2,000 years.
1: Earlier, didn't he say the kingdom of God is within mm-hmm.
0: Yes, but that's... A little different thing. not
1: the same kingdom?
0: Not exactly, no. They're talking about the physical kingdom. The Greek word means the coming of a king, bringing in the physical kingdom. Okay,
1: so although we belong to the kingdom, uh, we're strangers in this land.
0: Right. It's a concept called in biblical terms, here now but not yet. We've entered into the kingdom, but we're waiting for its fullness.
1: Okay.
0: Okay, Revelation 13. Revelation 13 You guys know what Revelation 13's about, right? Market a beast, yeah, the false Messiah and the false prophet, but this is a little different question. Go to verse 10 it says "He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So after quoting that, the person asked the question says, now this is taken from Jeremiah 15.2. So let's go back to Jeremiah 15.2. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 2. Not yet. Just the background, because the questioner gives these background verses first. So we have them clearly in mind. Jeremiah 15, verse 2 says, And it shall be, if they say to you, where shall we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord. Such as are for death to death, and such as for the sword to the sword and such as for the famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity to the captivity. question is, what does it mean in the context of the tribulation period? Yeah. So if you think back to the Babylonian captivity, the people were told, when Babylon invades, don't resist, go with them voluntarily. Because... God has commanded it, and who goes in the first wave? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they go because God commanded them to go. And there's a second wave, and there are more who give in to God and say, "Okay, I will go into captivity." Then the third wave were those who stood behind, and said, "I don't care what God says, I ain't going," and of course they were slaughtered where they stood. So what does this have to do? It's a picture of what will happen in the tribulation period. What does it have to do with the tribulation period? In the tribulation period, the saints must put their faith in God. So in the the tribulation period, are the saints allowed to trust in their military might? We can raise an army. We can defend ourselves. We'll fight against the false Messiah. We'll beat him. No, we're not allowed to do that. They're prohibited from killing in order to save their lives. They must not love their lives so much that they're unwilling to die for their faith. Let's go to Revelation 12.11. Revelation 12.11. It's another good reason not to be here during the tribulation period, right? Right. Let's go with the rapture and resurrection and be gone. Revelation 12:11, And they overcame him, who's him? The false Messiah and the Satan who is behind him, the power behind him. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. So in the tribulation period, those who become believers will be hunted by the false Messiah. He will behead all those he can get a hold of. Are they allowed to form an army to try and defend themselves? The answer is no. Why would God want them to trust him to the point that they will become martyrs rather than give in? It's all about faith. They were not saved when the rapture and resurrection came. And now they have made a profession of faith. How do we know that their faith is real? They will live by their faith, and if necessary, they will die by their faith. Do you remember when we read at Hanukkah about Hannah and her sons? And how all they had to do to save their lives was just eat the pig. Bow down to the Roman gods. Take part in the Greek sexually immoral festivities. And they said, nope. We will go to our deaths. And that's what Jeremiah 15.2 prophesies about. And Revelation 13.10 tells us is going to happen in the tribulation period. Is the saints are told by God not to kill To save their own lives, they don't have to march into the death camps, but they're not allowed to kill to save their own lives. Wouldn't you rather go in the rapture and resurrection? Me too. The next question is also from Revelation, Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. Revelation chapter 16, verse 19. It says, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. The question simply says in Revelation sixteen nineteen, quote, now the great city was divided into three parts, end quote. If the great city is Jerusalem, how is it divided into three parts and why is the great city in Revelation 16 19 Jerusalem the answer is no no it's referring to Babylon but in Revelation how many different cities are referred to as Babylon let's just take a look Let's start in Revelation chapter 11. Let's look in the Bible. Revelation chapter 11 verse 8. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 8, the great city is Jerusalem. How do we know? Let's see, verse 8. And their dead bodies, referring to the two witnesses... We'll lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. So here in Revelation 11, the great city is in fact Jerusalem. So why is it called Sodom and Egypt? Because of the spiritual state it's going to be in at the time that Revelation 11 takes place, which is at the middle of the tribulation. This isn't the first time um, Jerusalem has been called Sodom. That is correct. It's not. Isaiah one is called Sodom, and Isaiah one is called Sodom. And these are not the only two places. What he's saying is, you were acting like Sodom. When you're committing the sins of Sodom, then God looks at you the same way He looked at Sodom. Anybody remember how He looked at Sodom?
1: Destroyed it.
0: Destroyed it. That's right. that's Revelation eleven eight. Now let's go to chapter 14, verse 8. This time the great city is Babylon, not Jerusalem. Verse 8, another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city. Because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, in eleven eight is Jerusalem, and fourteen eight is Babylon. Now, let's go to sixteen nineteen. What's happened to most of the people who become believers in the tribulation period up to this point? They've been killed. So, who is the vast majority of the population of the earth? Are they good, godly people? They no, they act like Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon. So in chapter 16, verse 19, it says, And great Babylon was remembered before God. Babylon, if you remember, falls twice. There was the city of Babylon of old. It was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. But the spirit of Babylon, the religion, the false religion that Babylon started and embodies has continued down through the ages. And she's been in every culture we've had, just with different names. Isis, Horus, Set, Jupiter, Zeus, Baal. Many different names in many different cultures. But it's still the worship of the sun, the moon, and the child. Let's go to chapter 17, verse 18, to see what the great city is. And the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's Rome.
1: The Vatican,
0: the Vatican Rome, whom God calls Mystery Babylon, Mother of Harlots. I thought the New was mystery. <laughs> no, no, no. If you go back to Revelation 17, verse 5. <clears throat> says, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. In prophecy, a religious system is always referred to as a woman. And the harlot is the false religious system. And Babylon the Great, it says, is the mother of harlots. That is, the pagan religion has permeated throughout the world in many manifestations, in many countries, in many languages, with many names. But it all comes back to The worship of the sun god, the moon goddess, and the sun. In the pagan world, what was the mother and child called? Do you remember? The Madonna. That precedes Catholicism by thousands of years. Okay, continuing on, let's go to Revelation 18, verse 10 standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Here the great city is again Babylon. In the same chapter, in verse 16, and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. Now we're back to Rome and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In verse 18, and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? If you can't tell, Babylon and Rome are being used interchangeably throughout these chapters. In verse 19, they threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made a desolate. So again, Rome. Verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. Which sea? Mediterranean, Mediterranean yeah. Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Again, we're talking about Rome. Rome was the capital of the false messiah's kingdom until eventually a false messiah moves his th- throne to the temple of God, but Rome is still the seat of his power and the seat of his kingdom. And then Revelation 21.10. That says the great city Babel.
1: are so that
0: Yeah. Yeah, like I say, they're using Babylon and Rome interchangeable. When Peter says, he makes a reference to Babylon, all the theologians say that's just his code word for Rome. Because otherwise, there's no mention in the New Testament, even of Peter ever going to Rome. But when he refers to those in Babylon, salute you. And 21.10 is Rome, Rome, Rome. Right. That's why he uses Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. Right. Where was the worship of the mother and child, the sun god, centered in Rome? Why Sunday, why Easter, why etc? 2110. He carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So, in the last one, chapter 21, verse 10, that's Jerusalem, the great city. So, in Revelation 11, 8 is Jerusalem, and in 21, 10 is Jerusalem, and in between is Babylon slash Rome. So, Babylon will be divided into three parts by the great earthquake of Revelation 16, 18. And the question asks, why? Because God is very angry with rome and the false messiah who rules and reigns there the big question down through the ages is will the pope be the false messiah or the false prophet when will we know for sure when it happens happens. that's right let's see no right question marks the next one's from the book of daniel so start turning to daniel Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. Daniel, can I mean David? Wayne, can I ask a question? Um,
1: Why in the Bible didn't it refer to Constantine or Constantinople if Constantine was the bad guy doing the Nicene? Council, and I see it changing the dates and the times and, and worshiping taboos. I mean, how come Constantine wasn't the bad guy or Constantinople wasn't like Babylon? Does that make sense?
0: Constantine, Bible was Constantine ruled from Rome. When did Constantinople get established? That was after that point, if I remember correctly. I'll have to do a little study and find out exactly the date Constantinople was established, but I don't think that was in the 4th century. I think that was later. I didn't
1: realize the Roman Empire split.
0: Yeah, he ruled from Rome. The okay. Catholic Church eventually split into the Western Roman and the Eastern branch in Constantinople. That's why the the image in Daniel chapter 2 has two legs because the Catholic Church fractured. And the Western Church and the Eastern Church, they celebrate things like Christmas in different months and things like that on different dates. Um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 19 to 20. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. What's the fourth beast? Rome. Rome. First is Babylon, second Medo-Persia, third Greece, fourth Rome, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Did the Assyrian Empire make it over to Great Britain? No. Medo-Persia no, Greece no, Rome yes so Rome conquered more territory than any of the others before it verse 20, and the ten horns that were on its head, this is talking about the end of days, there will be ten kings who will make up the revived Roman Empire it says and the other horn, that's where the question centers is this other horn, what do we call this other horn? The false Messiah, Antichrist, or Beast of Revelation 13, which came up before which three fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth and which spoke pompous words. Where do we read about those pompous words? Second Thessalonians chapter two. Yeah, this is false Messiah. So the question is. Daniel 7, 19 to 20, refers to the ten horns on his head and the other horn which came up. Does this mean that there are actually eleven horns and eleven kingdoms and eleven powers? I don't think the, the
1: beast actually
0: had a kingdom, right? Originally, the beast did not have a kingdom. So there were ten kings, ten kingdoms. When the false Messiah rises, he overthrows three kings and takes their kingdoms. So there are eleven horns, but there's only ten kingdoms. And if you come either into Daniel or Revelation, let's go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation uses a lot of the symbols from the book of Daniel. And if you don't understand Daniel, you have a hard time understanding Revelation, chapters 13, etc. Revelation 13, 1. Then I stood in the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Why ten horns? Because there were ten kings. Why seven heads? Because three have been ripped out overthrown by the false messiah and on his horns ten crowns on his head's a blasphemous name so nancy's right originally the false messiah was not a king he overthrew three and took their power and authority from them leaving seven heads but the ten horns he's holding all the ten crowns because what did the other seven do they gave him his power and authority and said who is like the beast we can't make war and overcome him. That's verse 7. It was granted him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And all the nations will try and war against him, but they will be ultimately unsuccessful. So the question is, does that mean there are actually 11 horns, kingdoms, and powers? No, there are 11 horns, but there are 10 kingdoms, 10 powers. The false messiah originally had no kingdom, but he takes three by force. The other seven given their power willingly. And that's the kingdom of the false messiah. There being no circles, we'll go on to the next question. Let's turn back to the book of Genesis. Uh, What is the time frame for
1: this particular development uh, that we're talking about right now in Revelation
0: the false messiah overthrows three right,
1: and then
0: after the rapture and resurrection. Okay. He,
1: early in
0: the- yeah, very early. He has no kingdom yet, but once the believers are taken out in the rapture and resurrection, that's when he comes on the scene and takes power, takes control. Genesis 18. Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. It says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not... I will know. First part, well, let me just read the question. In Genesis 1820 and 1821, there's reference to the cry, quote-unquote, of Sodom and Gomorrah. The word cry appears twice, but from two different words. First one is H2201. The word is zakah. And the other is H6818, za'akah. And the question is, why is there a distinction? Also, if God had come down to see, if God had to come down to see for himself what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, how do we know that he doesn't have to come down and check for himself every time he gets bad news of what's going on down here? And if this is the case, why doesn't he know what's going on from where he is? Hey, it's a good question. It really is. Is he
1: omniscient or not?
0: That's the question. Is he omniscient or not? Does God know up there the very thoughts of our heart like the Bible says? Or does he have to come down and check out every bad report he gets? Good question. Let's answer the first part first. Zakah and zaakah. Write those two words down. The first one is Z-A-Q-A-H. Zakah. Second one is TSA, apostrophe, A-Q-A-H. I see a Hebrew expert looking at me going, those look a lot like they're the same word, don't they? Yeah, one's an alternate spelling for the other. Yeah, they have the same meaning. They have essentially the same root. If you're not familiar with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, they look quite different. And if you are, not so much. One's a zayin, one's a zadeh. And as people talk, it's hard to pick up the difference as you hear them rattle on at this speed it's normally spoken. So the two words mean essentially the same, and that is not uncommon in biblical Hebrew. Both mean a cry of distress or despair, They're simply alternate spellings. Why can there be alternate spellings in words in Hebrew? Because
1: there's no
0: vowels. The way the 50th letter has... The Torah codes. And you were saying?
1: There's no vowels.
0: There's no vowels. That's true. If you start with the first tav, they say, if you go every 50th letter from Genesis, from the beginning to end, every 50th letter, it spells out Torah, 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 all the way through. So sometimes a word can have more than one spelling to fit the pattern. Um, And then in Exodus, every 50th letter spells Torah. In Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's backwards. You start from the end and go toward the beginning and it spells Torah, Torah, Torah all the way through. So Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy Both point to Leviticus saying Torah, Torah, Torah. It's amazing. Even with computers today, you could not sit down and write five books and come up with a code that just happens to fit in text that makes sense. So a lot of times as you're reading along the biblical Hebrew, you'll say, wait a minute, they didn't spell this word quite right. But if they spelled it the way it's normally spelled, then it breaks the pattern. You go, ah, okay, I got it. Did God have to come down to see what was happening? The answer is no. But who is God speaking to in Genesis 18? Abraham. How precious is Lot to Abraham? Very precious. God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He wants Abraham to understand why this has got to happen. And that God will not destroy Lot in the process. What does it say in Genesis chapter 19? Verse 22, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Could God have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot and his family in it? He has the power, but... Would that be consistent with the nature of God to destroy the innocent with the guilty? The answer is no. Um, Messiah, when he talks about the day of the Lord, says, remember Lot and remember Noah as it was in the days of Lot, as it was in the days of Noah. Did God destroy the innocent with the guilty? He did not. He removed the innocent before the judgment fell on the guilty. Turn to Nahum chapter one. Hey, man, before yes, sir. I go there? Um,
1: if you think about it, this is this
0: instance in Genesis 18 is after Abraham believed God and counted him for righteousness. Yes, it's after Abraham believed God and God accounted uh, him for righteousness.
1: Strengthening Abraham's faith, so to speak.
0: That's exactly right. God is strengthening Abraham's faith.
1: Because he was showing Abraham, hey, if I say I'm not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked, take my word for
0: it. Right. So it's
1: like Abraham, it was like a test of faith for Abraham. Am I going to put my faith in a God that would destroy everybody without any kind of...
0: Yeah. What if Abraham thought God was being unfair and he just destroyed a bunch of innocent people? Am I sure I want to follow this that might have shaken Abraham's faith. So Abraham gets to say, well, what if there's 50? Oh, there's not 50. What if there's 40? Oh, there's not 40. What if there's 10? There's not even 10. Then Abraham understands why God's doing what God's doing. Does God have to explain it to us to get us to understand? No, but he wants to. He wants us to understand. Look at the book of Nahum, chapter 1.
1: So that makes it make more sense. But Abraham, in Genesis 22, up early to do what God asked him to
0: do. Yeah, notice that this comes before Genesis 22 when God asked Abraham to go take Isaac to Mount Moriah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on whom? His adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. Does God pour out his wrath on his children? Does God pour out his wrath on his bride? No. No. So those people who say that the believers have to go through the tribulation period because we deserve to have God's wrath poured out on us, that's contrary to the nature of God. So if we turn back to Genesis 18, where this question originates. Yes, ma'am? Uh, what, what was that reference and
1: Nahum?
0: Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Thank you. Yep. Genesis chapter 18, look at verse 23, which is just two verses later. Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? See the confusion on Abraham's face? Would you do that? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it? For the 50 righteous that were in it, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So did God come down because he didn't know whether Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked or because he wanted Abraham to understand? He wanted Abraham to understand. And that means you and I can understand too that God pours out his wrath on the wicked, not upon his children. Uh huh.
1: And the judge can look at somebody, and he's got an idea from the rap sheet what the likely outcome is. But he sits and he hit, he hears, and he goes through all the evidence, examining it. You know, and so it's a very similar thing, even though he's very much fully aware of who he's dealing with.
0: Yeah, you can look at a lot of rap sheets and say this guy's a scumbag. But that doesn't mean he's guilty of this crime. You actually need to look at the evidence. I agree. One thing you'll also find if you ever try practicing law is that jurors are a little harder to mislead than TV makes them look. (laughs) Okay, next question is from Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Verse forty eight. Matthew Chapter five, Verse forty eight. Matthew Chapter five, I see you're still turning. Verse forty eight. Right after Verse forty seven. Okay. Therefore, there is no 49, (laughs) therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Oh, in English, perfect is an awfully tough standard, isn't it? So the question is, the word perfect here is Greek word 5046 teleos, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. Does that sound a lot like telos? It's from the same root. says, so is Yeshua telling us to be perfect as our Father is perfect before there is some possibility of us being perfect? Or is he saying that if we somehow manage to do all these things, from Matthew 5, 17 to five thirty seven, then we would actually be as perfect as God in a moral sense? Well, the Greek word here is derived from telos, which means it's the goal. Our goal is what? To reach salvation through Messiah. So Yeshua is telling us that we need spiritual maturity. We need to imitate him. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 verse 10. I think it helps us understand. I hear the English word perfect and you think of the way we normally use that word. That's not what this word means. And every time I come across the New Testament, I say, no, that doesn't mean perfect as and absolutely perfect. It means spiritually mature. Spiritually mature. And of course, you go to spiritual maturity by sanctifying your life, by cleaning the sin out of it to the best of your ability. 1 Corinthians 13.10 says, but when that which is perfect has come, Then that which is in part will be done away. And again, that word perfect means complete, has reached the goal, has grown to spiritual maturity. Not that we will be perfection as God is perfection. But our goal is to imitate Messiah as much as possible. Give me a verse, 1 Corinthians 11. First one. First Corinthians was written by Paul to what kind of believers? Those that come out of the Gentile world. Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Messiah. How many pastors have you heard you say, well, that means we should be going to church on Sunday morning just like Paul did. <laughs> Eating a ham sandwich just like Paul did. Where's the fallacy in their argument? Paul didn't do those things. Paul did not do those things. So God is at the goal. Let's endeavor to go join him at the goal, which is spiritual maturity, salvation through our Messiah, Yeshua. Where else does it say we should imitate Messiah? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, right? So let's make a note of that. 1 John two, six. If we had to be perfect like God is perfect in order to be saved, how many of us would get there? None. It would be the yeah. keeping the Torah. Yeah, exactly. It would be keeping the Torah perfectly from the moment of conception I'm never going to make it. 1 John two, six. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Why does, why does John use that phrase, he who says he abides in him? What's he thinking of? John, it's John 15.
1: Think
0: abide in me is abide in me. Exactly, John 15, 4. Let's go back to John 15, 4. If you want to bear fruit, you must abide in the vine. John 15, for abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing.
1: You don't bear little fruit, nothing.
0: Yeah, if anyone does not abide in me, he is what? Cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. That's
1: not in the Baptist Bible.
0: I know it's I'm not, sorry. but but it is in my Bible, isn't it? <laughs> to, t- people say, well, to be cast out as a branch, gathered up, and thrown in the fire just means you'll get less rewards. Okay. Is that what that says? Like it. No, it does not.
1: <laughs> sounds
0: like you got the fire. Yeah, okay. No red circles, so let's go to the next question. Turn to Matthew chapter 23.
1: Would you say another translation of that perfect if we
0: carry the word tamim? Tamim is what they're looking at, without spot or blemish, yeah. So it's
1: not necessarily being just perfect as we think of it in English. Right. It's kind of like the word love. In English, it has so many different flavors, but yeah. different
0: flavors, it's like, It means when you commit a sin, what do you do? You repent and, and turn away, from, away it.
1: from it. So it's like having that heart of David,
0: Yeah. You know,
1: that after God's
0: heart. If you confess with your mouth, God's what? Gonna do? He's gonna, gonna, forgive. gonna forgive. Yeah. So that spot or blemish get wiped out. Doesn't mean you never had one. It means they've been forgiven. You've been washed clean. So Matthew 23. It says, what would the Hebrew version of the word proselyte, which is the Greek word 4339 proselutos, be, and do we see any examples of it being used in the Old Testament? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes to both. The Hebrew equivalent of proselytos in Greek is gear. So let's look at Hebrew, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 15, then we'll look at the Hebrew. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So what's the proselyte? One who has joined themselves to Israel to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only if they're following after the scribes, they're turning away from God's commandments and following man-made commandments. So the Hebrew equivalent is ger, Hebrew word 1616. Let's go to Numbers chapter 15. Verses 15 to 16. Numbers 15, 15. Yep, 15 verses 15 and 16. How do we figure out what the Greek equivalents are to Hebrew words? You look at the Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation from the Hebrew. So where they have ger in the Hebrew, they use proselyte in the Septuagint. That's what I mean by the equivalent. it
1: gets a little confusing because a lot of times a Greek word...
0: Yeah, sometimes it does, yeah. So you just kind of have to dig, navigate.
1: navigate
0: through that. Yeah, just like in Matthew chapter 5, you have the word fulfill in two different verses, and they come from two entirely different words. Yeah, okay. Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16. What is the gear or proselyte supposed to be? Yep. One ordinance shall be for you the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So the scribes and Pharisees converted these Gentiles, brought them into Judaism, and taught him to ignore God's commandments, and do instead the man-made rules and regulations that Messiah condemns in Matthew 15 and Mark chapter 7. Let's look also at Deuteronomy 5.14. Deuteronomy 5.14. What's in Deuteronomy 5? The Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter five verse fourteen. Deuteronomy 5:14s is about the Sabbath. Verse fourteen says, "But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox." nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. That word stranger is gear. If it was in the Greek, it would be proselyte. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And also in Deuteronomy 31, the last reference we'll look at on this question. Deuteronomy 31 verse 12. Deuteronomy 31 is about reading the book of Deuteronomy at the Feast of Tabernacles in the year of Jubilee every seven years. So says, gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe what? All the words of this law all the words of the Torah. So in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, they were not teaching them to follow God's laws. They were teaching them to follow their man-made doctrines. What did the church do in the fourth century? Yeah, we know the same thing. Next question. Another good one that you really got to stop and think. It says given that the mixed multitude came out of Egypt with a great deal of livestock, let's go to Exodus 12:38. Is that true, did they? Yes, they did. Exodus 12:38. Exodus twelve thirty eight says a mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds a great deal of livestock.
1: What was it that the Egyptians hated? Was it sheep
0: or Sheep. Sheep. Why? Because what does sheep eat? Yeah. Grass. Down to the Nothing. roots. That's Egypt, right.
1: Egypt didn't have much
0: of that. Right. Cows will eat the top of the grass, but they leave the roots, so the grass grows back. Sheep just eat it all. If you've been to Israel, especially in the fall time, you will see the herds of sheep and goats up on the mountainside, and you don't see any grass. You swear they're up there eating rocks. They're eating roots. But they're eating roots. That's exactly right. They leave nothing behind. So the question is, Given that the mixed multitude came out of Egypt with, quote, a great deal of livestock, Exodus 12, 38, why were the children of Israel complaining about food such a short time after the departure from Egypt? Also, what would the livestock have eaten if they were in the wilderness? Both good questions. (laughs) (laughs) Exodus 12, 38, we read it. The flocks and herds would not last very long if they were slaughtering them day in and day out to feed two million or more people. Right. And when they get to the promised land, they use the animals they brought out of Egypt to start up their herds and to get them to grow and multiply. So if they eat them all the first couple of weeks out of come, after coming out of Egypt, they have no food for the rest of the journey and they have no flocks and cattle to start up when they get to the promised land. So they can't eat those. What are they eating in the wilderness? Wilderness, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean a desert like um, the Sahara where there's absolutely nothing. There's still little bits of grass and things in the wilderness. There's just not a lot to feed people. A lot of acres per cow or something. Yeah, a lot of acres per animal. But how large was the Sinai? Very big. Yeah. Plus,
1: I don't think they were counting on. They probably just thought oh this is great we'll be in the promised
0: land yeah and back in those days they didn't eat meat every day generally the meal is the bread that you dip in vegetables like tomatoes and peppers and, and spices and things but you
1: got milk for the young
0: people. but you've got milk from the young people yep you still have to feed them too But we think of meals today as we have meat three times a day. They didn't back then. They still don't in Israel for the most part from what I've seen. The meat was the special times, the festivals before the Lord, big barbecues. Okay, there is a little bit of grass though and and moss and things to feed the animals. Next question is back in Matthew, go to Matthew 26. Those, so, those same mountains, if you visit, say, in April, are just covered with beautiful wildflowers all over. It's an entirely different view in April than it is in November.
1: Well, isn't that a pretty good analogy between sheep and, and people? Don't people just pretty much destroy everything
0: around them? Yeah. Matthew 26, verse 29. Matthew 26, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. What's that in Hebrew? Prehagafen. From now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the question says, in Matthew 26, 29, Yeshua says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Is there anything to compare this with in Scripture where there is a long period of absence from wine for a particular purpose? Answer that is no. The Nazarite vow. Okay. So maybe there is something. As long as you're under a Nazarite vow, you can not only not drink wine, you can't drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins, anything made from grapes. Okay. Maybe that's a better answer. Nazarite vow. Now, let me continue with my answer. My answer was no. Yours is better, okay? Okay. Yeshua is going to die the very same day that he says this. And he will not be with them for Passover again until after the rapture and the resurrection. So it's at the Passover Seder that he tells the disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again. So he will not live until the next Passover. So there's a lot of prophecy in that. In fact, he's going to die that very day. And what do the soldiers try and give him when he's hanging on the tree? Vinegar Vinegar or sour wine. It's made from grapes. And he said, I will not drink of this again until I drink with you in paradise. So that's why he refuses it. I've heard lots of pastors say, well, they must have put some kind of painkiller in it, some kind of drugs that that's why he wouldn't have it. But he said, no, I won't drink it again till I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom and paradise. So he didn't. He just didn't. Okay. But the Nazarite vow. If I take a Nazarite vow, how long is it for? That's right. I get to decide how long. Usually it was a couple months. And usually it's till Shavuot. That's right. You end the Nazarite vow at Shavuot. So it's three months till Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, whatever you want to call it. I say, I'm gonna take a vow, I shave off my head, I do the mikvah, I let my hair grow, don't touch anything made from grapes, don't touch any dead bodies until Shavuot. When I shave off the hair that's grown during the vow, burn it with the the animal sacrifice on the altar, do a mikvah, and I've completed my vow. Essentially, that's the way it goes. There were some exceptions though. People who were Nazarites from birth and they didn't have any choice about it. Such as? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Samuel. Samuel.
1: Samson.
0: Samson. 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 That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, but the reason they show all the long hair pictures of Yeshua is because he was a Nazarene and they think that's the same as a Nazarite. Do you realize it's not? He was drinking wine. <laughs> yeah. He was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene, which means he's from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Next question is from Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the virgins and their oil lamps. Here's the question. In Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins and their oil lamps, there's no mention of the bride. So where is she? And why is the bridegroom coming to summon the virgins, presumably in the role of bridesmaids, if the bride isn't with them? But interestingly, I found one version of this, the Douay reims, which makes one reference to the bride. Matthew 25, 1, in the Douay reims version says, Then shall the king of heaven be like to ten virgins who, taking their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom and the bride. Mm. Yeah, so the Douay Reims is completely off base, completely, because when you see the reference to virgins in the scripture, it's talking about a woman who is betrothed and is waiting for the bridegroom to come get her to take her to the wedding where she is the bride. So these 10 virgins are young, virtuous women expecting to be the bride, waiting for the bridegroom to come get them. So it's talking about 10, which is a minion, expecting to go in the rapture and a resurrection. Five go and five don't. But they all thought they were the bride. They all thought they were going to go when the bridegroom called, so why don't they all go? Because half of them aren't actually saved. Oil. The oil's a picture of the Holy Spirit. So five are saved, five are not, but they all think they are. It's like in Matthew chapter 7, the broad road and the narrow road. They all think they're on the way to eternal life. But m- the majority of them are on which road? The wide. the wide road, leading to destruction. So it's just another warning in Matthew 25 that If you think you're the bride waiting for the bridegroom, make sure you're saved. So the short answer is these virgins are the betrothed waiting to become the bride when the bridegroom comes and takes them up to the father's house. When you're betrothed, it's not like engaged today. You know the difference, right? If you want to break a betrothal, you have to give the bride a get, a bill of divorce. Yes. You, when you are betrothed, that's the first stage of marriage. Can't, can't cohabitate, no hanky-panky. But you are in the first stage of marriage. And in order to break it, you must give her a get, a bill of divorce. That's what Joseph was thinking about doing when it says he was thinking about putting Mary away Privately. That is, he was going to give her a bill of divorce and send her away quietly and not make a public spectacle out of it. Oftentimes, it was a public spectacle to shame the bride, and he had no desire to shame her, just to divorce her and send her away quietly back to whatever man she'd been with. When the Holy Spirit came and said, what? Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. She's not been with a man. That which is within her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay. Next question is from Jeremiah. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. What kind of Bible is the Douay Catholic. Catholic, yeah. Jeremiah 3.8, let me read the verse and the question. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. Was Israel married to God, or was Israel betrothed to God? Israel was betrothed to God, which is the first stage, like I talked about. How do you break a betrothal? You had to do it with the get, the bill of divorce. That's what it's talking about in Jeremiah 3.8. So after quoting Jeremiah 3, it says, So if God is divorced from the northern kingdom, and he is, and because Torah forbids remarriage between a couple who was previously married to each other, that's in Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. How will God's relationship with the 10 tribes of Israel be resolved? Will they have a different relationship with God to the relationship between Judah and God? Because God did not divorce Judah unless he did somewhere and I missed it. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. I questioned that
1: one. if if one of the parties has remarried the the remarriage would be forbidden but if if they have
0: divorced right so let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 you're going to discuss Deuteronomy 24 we haven't read it yet but you're on the right track Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 when a man takes a wife and marries her that's not the betrothal That's kind of redundant yeah, No, it's not, though. My friend marriage Yeah, too so too one's the betrothal, the other's the actual marriage ceremony, which has God taken his bride yet? Nope, we're still in the betrothal stage. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Means when he goes into her on the wedding night and she's not the virgin she claimed to be. She's been... Comes a hanky panky, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So in that case, it's forbidden. But Israel was not married to God only in the betrothal stage. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4 doesn't apply for that reason. The marriage has not yet come. You dissolve the betrothal with a divorce, like we talked about. And there's no mention of Jude, of the northern kingdom of Israel being married to another man who also divorced her or died after being married to her. So the facts simply don't fit. And that's not even
1: comparable to Hosea.
0: It's not even comparable to Hosea. Where in Hosea, God says... Never
1: divorced
0: her. Right. Okay, so I think we're clear on that one. So we just had to clarify the facts a little. Ah, the next one's back to the New Testament. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, 17. It says, therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Yeshua, who is called Messiah? So it says, I have heard a number of times that Barabbas was actually named Yeshua Bar-Abba. That's true from what we know meaning salvation, son of the father. Yeshua means salvation. Bar is Aramaic for son of. Abba is daddy, so salvation, son of the father. A picture of Messiah, but also a false Messiah. Where in scripture do we see Barabbas' first name, i.e. Yeshua or Jesus? Matthew twenty-seven seventeen. there are several manuscripts that name the terrace Yeshua Bar-Abba. And, quote, Pilate is asking, whom do you want me to release for you, Yeshua Bar-Abbas, or Yeshua who's called the Messiah. So the particular text from which Matthew 27 is translated only has the name Barabbas. Historians tell us his name was Yeshua bar Abba, and there are several manuscripts who call him that. But they were not the ones used to translate into English for our New Testament. So, um, in fact, some of the manuscripts I've, I've quoted here, whom do you want me to release for you, Yeshua Barabbas or Yeshua who's called the Messiah? So, no, in our Bibles, he's only called Barabbas, but in external documents, he's referred to as Yeshua Barabbas. And that's why in ours, it has Barabbas and then, or Yeshua who is called the Messiah. Why would he have to qualify? Which Yeshua, except that they're both named Yeshua, and in the picture Israel accepts the false Messiah instead of the true, which is kind of a prophetic picture. And what do we have to add? But I wasn't there. But okay. So nowhere in my New Testament does it say Yeshua Bar Abba. I just know from external documents they say that's what his name was. And there's a footnote in your Bible? For
1: the previous verse.
0: verse For the previous 16, verse? Verse 16. Verse 16. The, the
1: text, like where the NIV and all that comes from, says that it reads, instead of Barabbas, it's Jesus Barabbas or
0: Yeshua Barabbas. Yeah.
1: So if you look at the NIV, it does say at that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was
0: Jesus Barabbas. Right. The NIV, which I was trying hard not to name by saying other versions. <laughs> does actually say Yeshua Barabbas or Jesus I Barabbas. I, I ruined it for example. <laughs> no. The <laughs> same would be true of the NASB and other documents that are translated from the Westcott Hort Greek text, which is an adulterated Greek text. So when I quoted here, I was quoting from the NIV. I just didn't want to tell anybody that I knew what that was. Okay. <laughs> I call it the non-inspired version. Okay. Next question. But, yeah, that's a good fill-in. I probably should have added it anyway. Do we know how, as a baby, John the Baptist escaped Herod's decree to murder all the baby boys? he? Would he have had special protection as being part of the Essene community? You guys are exactly right. Go back to Matthew 2.16. He was not born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2:16 Herod didn't decree to kill all the babies in the nation just in Bethlehem. Matthew 2:16 Matthew 2:16 Matthew 2:16 now nah, I think we're all there. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, what's that in Hebrew? The Chachamim. These are not, as people tell us, pagans from the east. These are the yeshiva students in the great yeshivas, the Jewish training schools in Babylon. They were called the Chachamim. Spell it. C H A. C H A K I M. Cha. <laughs> Chachamim. Right. Thank you. Okay. That's where you really get
1: the word. Chachamim.
0: Right. Anything that makes you say, Chachamim. Chacham <laughs> is the word for wise. Chachamim is the plural. But anyway, sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all his districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. John was not born in Bethlehem. He was born at Ein Karim in Jerusalem. Why was he born at Ein Karim in Jerusalem? His father was a priest. Shortly after the birth of John the Baptist, they left Jerusalem and went to the Essene community at Qumran. Yes, dear.
1: Wouldn't the fact that they consider a child a year old at birth
0: also help to limit that? Well, John's only six months older than Messiah. So if he'd been born in Bethlehem, he might have been caught in the window. But only the children in Bethlehem. And John was born at Ein Karim and then raised in Qumran. Next question is in Matthew chapter 12. verse 9. Matthew chapter 12 verse 9. Now when he had departed from there he went into their synagogue. Why does it say into their synagogue and not the synagogue. Is Matthew implying that there was something about quote their synagogue unquote that Yeshua did not endorse or relate to? The answer that is no. It's talking about go up in verse 2 when the Pharisees saw it they said to him look your disciples are doing what's lawful, not lawful to do in the Sabbath. These are the Pharisees who are trying to accuse him to find fault with him. He goes into their synagogue to do a great healing on the Sabbath day. So he wants to make sure they see it. It's done essentially in their face. Like walking on the yeah, kind of like walking on the Temple Mount. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So he went into the synagogue of the scribes and Pharisees that were accusing him of wrongdoing, accusing him of letting his disciples eat a handful of grain on Shabbat and said, well, look at this. And heals a man with a withered hand. Is there anything in scripture that prohibits you from healing a man with a withered hand on Shabbat? The answer is no. But did the Pharisees have a rule against it? Yes. Yes. So he goes in their synagogue and heals the man in front of him and says, now what you got to say?
1: He actually laid up a pretty good story before that. He he said, you pull your own sheep out of the ditch on the Sabbath. Hey, stretch out your hand there. And now, okay, what what do you think? Exactly.
0: Exactly. He says, if you want to see me do something impressive on Shabbat, here it is. But did he break any of God's commandments about Shabbat? No. Neither did, did he flaunt the Pharisees' man-made rules? Big time. Shouldn't it have taught him something? Yeah. yeah. So why didn't they see it for what it was? They didn't want to. You know, it's really hard to convince somebody of something they don't want to know.
1: Or you can't not offend someone who wants to be offended.
0: It's hard not to offend somebody who wants to be offended. That's true, too. It's like
1: trying to convince the anti-missionary of the truth of what he just read to you.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> The next one comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, which is part of the seven letters to the seven churches. Or more specifically, to the angels of the seven churches. And what do the angels of the seven churches represent? The pastors, the leaders, the congregational leaders. Call them what you will. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. As people are still flipping to it. I
1: hope that's not literal. What's that? Verse 12. I hope it's not literal. Okay.
0: Okay. It's not. It refers back to the psalm that David wrote about wanting to be a pillar in the house of God.
1: Yeah, I'd rather be a pillar <laughs> yeah. than a
0: pillar. Yeah, of all, well, He who overcomes, we know what that means from 1 John chapter 5. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from out of heaven from my God, and I'll write on him my new name. How many times does it say of my God?
1: Three. Four.
0: No, four. Yeah, one's in one column, three in the other column. So four times. So that's the essence of the question. It says, why does Yeshua refer so emphatically to my God in a way that on the surface suggests that Yeshua is separate from God? Are we supposed to think that God worships himself?
1: But one, because Yeshua has judgment in God. Him. Mm-hmm. Right? And Him and the Father are
0: one, but He speaks everything from the Father. Yeshua always points to the Father. Always. Worship the Father. Yeah. Always. And yet when they fell down on His feet and worshiped Him, did you like the angels say, get up, God's watching? No. But He never says, worship me. He always wants to point us to the Father. So the false Messiah is always trying to get us to worship his God, which is Satan. But Messiah always points us to the true and living God. And Yeshua was the physical embodiment of the true and living God. But he is not all of God. Where is God? God's everywhere. You can't contain all of God in a body. So he never says, worship me. Always worship God. Always. Let's look at some of the examples. Matthew 6, 9. Where was the doctrine of the Trinity? There being three gods around a campfire codified. Yeah, Rome, Catholic Church, 4th century. Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He never says, hey, pray to me. But pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Philippians chapter 2. He teaches this way because this is the way he wants us to think. Our father is in heaven. Our God has been from the beginning. Our father is the creator, the redeemer, the comforter. Messiah wasn't going to have his physical body on earth, but what? 33 and a half years? But he's been from the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where did I tell you to go? Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, you're right. Verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. Who, being in the form of God, what's that mean? From the beginning? He was God, he is God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Why did he have to come in a body of flesh and blood in the likeness of men? To be our kinsman Redeemer has got to be our kinsman. Do you ever try to nail a spirit to a tree? Can you do that? Mm. Despite what some of the OPRs and the government seem to say. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he, became, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. He did not want to be treated like God. He wanted to point everybody to God who from the beginning is spirit. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Yeshua every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Lord, is the Lord, as in the Lord from Genesis forward to the glory of God the Father. So it's hard to understand. But when Yeshua is flesh and blood, he has humbled himself. He's made himself subject to sickness, to death, to injury, so that he could die for us and shed his blood. And then what happened? Then he ascends back to heaven, takes on the heavenly glory, and bears it for eternity. Go to Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. He, referring to Messiah Yeshua. You're not there yet. Let me show down. He. Colossians 1.15. That comes right after Philippians. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, Messiah Yeshua, is the image of the invisible God. Meaning what? If God appeared in his heavenly glory, you couldn't see him. Why? He's a spirit. spirit. He doesn't have a physical body like we have. So Messiah is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, For by him, by Messiah, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Meaning not only did Messiah create them in the first place, he holds them together. But God created the heavens and the earth, it tells us in Genesis 1.1, which is right. Answers answer is both, because Yeshua is God from all eternity. And let's go to John 10.30. John 10.30. The nature of God is hard to explain. But the concept of the Trinity which says that God is three coexistent, co-equal persons flies in the face of John chapter 10 verse 30 which says I and my Father are one. There are many theologians out there who say yeah Wayne, wait, 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 wait you misunderstand that. It means that Jesus and God agree on things. That's what it means. So Jesus agrees with God. That's why they pick up stones to stone him, right? Verse 33 the Jews answered him, saying, For good work we not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Did they stone people for thinking like God, for agreeing with God? No, they knew exactly what Messiah was saying. Let's see, I think we have time for one more, unless that's a question. Nope, nope, it's I'm getting tired. Got it. Next question is in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Verse 20. 20. Matthew 24, verse 20. The words are read. You know what that means. Matthew 24, 20, you there? It says, and pray that your flight, that is the flight when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place as prophesied by Daniel the prophet. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. It says this seems to imply the Yeshua would not expect a believer to travel on the Sabbath. But given that he's urging people to be ready to flee a most horrible and unimaginable threat, does this mean that the, quote, light and heavy, quote, concept is not allowed in certain circumstances? For example, if an evaluation of light and heavy involves the Sabbath. Good question, but it does not necessarily mean that. He's simply stressing the need to flee rapidly. Light and heavy, kovach homer. Sometimes there are two commandments that conflict. For example, the showbread can only be eaten by the priest. And yet David ate the showbread and was not condemned for it because he and his men were starving to death. And which is better, to preserve life or to keep the bread set aside for only the priests? That's an example of light and heavy. Yeah, sure.
1: Well, when it says, and pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath, kind of sounds like he doesn't know when it's going to happen.
0: No, he's simply saying that when it happens, when the abomination and desolation is set up, he says, don't even go down to get your, your valuables. Run. Well, in Israel, on the Sabbath how much mass transportation runs. There's no buses, there's no taxis. There's no way to flee quickly. And in the winter time, Jerusalem's where? In the mountains? I've got pictures of it three feet deep in snow. How many around here, when it snows in the dead of winter, say, I'll watch on to meeting? <laughs> yeah. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is better now. But when I first went in 1992, when you took the road up from Jericho to Jerusalem, the road was as wide as the bus. And everybody rode praying hard. And you'd look down the valley, the ravine below would probably be 2,000, 3,000 feet down, and there's wrecked buses all over the bottom of it, literally. And you're saying, we hope this bus driver is a very good bus driver, right? That's the way it was. It's better now. They've widened the road. But it's too far to walk. But if you've got to flee quickly, you don't want it to be in the winter or on Shabbat if you're in Jerusalem. Because there is no fleeing rapidly. What if we're here? What if we're here? then who cares the abomination desolations in jerusalem only have his minions all over the world world, but doesn't matter when he sets up that the that abomination desolation 30 days later the antichrist is going to seat himself in the temple satan is going to indwell him and it's going to be really bad of course we won't be here but if the false messiah is going to be in the temple in Jerusalem and I'm going to be on the earth I'd rather be in Georgia than in Jerusalem.
1: You just tell him get out
0: of Dodge because it's going to get really bad. So that's all he's really trying to get across is you're going to have to flee. So you hope it's the kind of conditions where you can flee quickly and rapidly. Yes sir. It's not talking about the rapture. but go ahead. No,
1: I'm just, I've got another
0: point. Right. If the rapture. I gathered happens, that after I said something. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, the rapture happens at Feast of Trumpets.
0: If the rapture happens at Feast of Trumpets. That's in the fall. As, that's in the fall.
1: Right. If you fast forward three and a half years, that would put it in the spring. So there's really not a way that that could happen in the
0: winter anyway. If you fast forward three and a half years, that puts it in the spring. But the abomination desolation takes place 30 days before the midpoint. So 30 days before springtime. It could still be winter. And Jerusalem's up in the mountains. So it could still be treacherous. Right. Yeah. Well, how do we know the abomination of desolation is set up 30 days before the midpoint? So. The in Daniel chapter 12. Yep, yeah, exactly. Well, our time has expired for tonight. We will pick up with the next question on page 19 of 27 next Friday night, God willing.